Uh, thank you very much for joining us for this year's first McDowell Institute lecture. I'm very happy that we can do this in person, even if somewhat impersonally. We haven't been able to do anything in person for a very, for a very long time. My name is Terry Price. I co-direct the Institute with my colleague Dan Palazzolo in the back. As many of you know, the Institute's namesake, Gary McDowell, passed away in August of this year. He was a very special friend to so many of us. Uh, let's please take a moment to remember Gary. One thing Gary was very proud of is our Student Fellows Program. We recently selected the 2021-2022 class of fellows, and they met earlier this afternoon for a lively discussion with our speaker. I would like to ask the fellows to please stand and be recognized. Thank you. Now on to the program. Given that our guest will be speaking on education, we thought it appropriate to have her introduced by a longtime and respected educator. Kenneth Ruscio was president of the Virginia Foundation of Independent Colleges from 2017 to 2018 and from 2006 to 2016 of Washington and Lee University, where he previously served as professor of politics, dean of freshmen, and associate dean of the Williams School of Commerce, Economics, and Politics. Here at the University of Richmond, many of us know him best as the third dean of the Jepson School of Leadership Studies. Among other things for which we owe Ken a debt of gratitude is that he's the dean who hired Gary McDowell. We're fortunate to have Ken back in the Jepson School, this time as a senior distinguished lecturer. The author of The Leadership Dilemma in Modern Democracy, Ken is currently teaching courses such as Humility and Political Leadership and The Democratic Prospect. Please welcome Ken Ruscio. Excuse me for a minute here. It's hard uh, to actually see faces here, but uh, so I hope nobody's too shocked by a full face. But. Professor uh, Rita Kogenson's book, Liberal States, Authoritarian Families, Childhood and Education in Early Modern Thought, came out late this spring. In anticipation of her visit this afternoon, I picked the book up a couple of weeks ago, right around Election Day, when here in Virginia, the gubernatorial race was apparently turning on the role of schools and parents in the education of their children. As with so many issues these days, the positions of the candidates were expressed in bumper stickers, slogans, yard signs, uppercase letters on Twitter, and 15-second political ads about chaos in schools and parents rebelling against school boards. Right around that time in my own class, we were exploring something called binary bias defined as the basic human tendency to seek clarity and closure by simplifying a complex continuum into two categories. Suffice to say, our speaker this afternoon does not suffer from that affliction. This week, as I got further into the book, I attended a meeting with my fellow trustees of an independent school here in Richmond and listened to a national expert describe the challenges facing schools these days. Among them, the effects of political polarization on teachers in the classroom. That same day, a column in the Financial Times discussed how education is now center stage in our culture wars, and therefore center stage in our political wars. It's a good time to be focused on schools, families, and liberal democracy. Political philosophers are not policy analysts, however. They don't advise us on what to do, not usually anyway, but rather they help us understand why, and also why current disputes are usually just the latest variations of long-standing philosophical contest. Shockingly, we are not the first to think about these matters. Liberal States Authoritarian Families is an elegant book offering a firm position to be sure, but one crafted with thoroughness, insight, originality, and nuance. Hobbes, Locke, and Rousseau play starring roles, and along the way we encounter Jefferson and Madison, 
and contemporary writers such as Rawls, Galston, and Gutman, to name just a few. It's about sorting out authority in a liberal society. And while it is certainly about schooling and families, and therefore an important remedy to today's simplistic and time-bound rendering of our controversies, it is also an important contribution to liberal political thought and the internal contradictions it has been trying to resolve since its origins. One of them being, as Rita so nicely puts it, that the imposition of private authority is a prerequisite for public liberty. Rita Kogansen is the Associate Director of the Program on Constitutionalism and Democracy and Assistant Professor of Politics at the University of Virginia. Her work focuses on the themes of education, childhood, authority, and the family in historical and contemporary political thought. Her research and essays have appeared in the American Political Science Review, the Review of Politics, and the History of Education Quarterly as well as in the Hedgehog Review, National Affairs, The Point, and the Chronicle of Higher Education, among others. She received her PhD in government from Harvard University and her BA in history from the University of Chicago. Rita, we look forward to hearing your comments. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me. I'm very honored to be here, and I wanted to thank uh, Terry Price and Dan Palazzolo and the McDowell Institute for inviting me to speak to you today. Uh, my topic, parental authority in education, has very suddenly become relevant uh, in the past few weeks and months, especially here in Virginia. Uh, after many years of being the kind of obscure thing that graduate students toil away at in the bowels of university libraries. So being trendy is kind of new to me, and you'll have to pardon my waiting until the end of this talk to address the interesting and relevant questions of how to govern education in the contemporary United States. But where I want to begin instead is with the deeper dilemma that underlies questions about who should determine public school curricula, which is who should govern children and for what ends. Then I want to look at how this question was first answered by earlier liberals before we consider how it might be answered today. You're not the boss of me. This is a pronouncement you may have heard, or even uttered yourself at some point very long ago, I'm sure. Uh, it comes from children chafing against some imposed limitation. Further efforts to restrict them can often elicit from even the youngest among them a fairly sophisticated political philosophy, namely, this is a free country and I can do what I want. It might occur to us to wonder how people who have been alive for fewer years than they have fingers and still use those fingers to count came to harbor such expansive ideas about their liberty. Is it true, as the child philosopher asserts, that in a free country it is in fact the case that no one should be the boss of them? However exasperating parents may find this proposition when it's advanced against them, their children have correctly intuited the liberal tradition's prevailing suspicion of authority, and especially of personal authority. The rise of liberalism went hand in hand with the decline of what Max Weber called traditional authorities, the clerics, the feudal nobility, and scholastics of pre-Reformation Europe. At the same time, the ascent of political theories of individual right uh, natural equality and contract elevated impersonal and neutral states that put what was left of the clergy and the nobility on the defensive. This was, of course, no mere historical coincidence, but grounded uh, in the central aims of liberalism, which were to topple arbitrary political authority and replace it with a government grounded in consent and conducted by elected representatives who were constrained by the natural rights of their constituents. The goal was from the start to ensure that, as far as possible, you would be the only boss of you. Of course, it was never quite that simple. The highest values of liberal democracy are liberty and equality, and while these are formally only the guiding principles of our politics, they easily and logically bleed into private and social life as well. There is an intuitive logic behind treating fellow citizens as equals, invested with rights at the supermarket and at the office, if we treat them this way at the ballot box. And that's what I call in my book the logic of congruence, the demand that the governing principles of our political regime, liberty and equality in this case, also be the governing principles of every association and relationship within that regime. 
So not just our politics, but also our workplaces, our churches, families, even our friendships might be made more egalitarian in accordance with the regime. But there are all kinds of associations within liberalism that aren't internally liberal and egalitarian in their organization. And it's possible that they can't be organized around liberty and equality without losing their efficacy or sacrificing their very purpose. And at the extreme end of these possibilities lies the family, especially the relationship between parents and children. Children pose the most obvious challenge to the logic of congruence, since they're not, as the 17th century royalist writer Robert Filmer pointed out, born free and capable of governing themselves, but rather they're born totally dependent on adults. Children, John Locke admitted in response, are not born in this full state of, of equality, but they are born to it. This immediately raises the education question. What does it take to bring children from dependence to freedom? A political regime grounded in natural freedom has to contend with the brute fact that children are not immediately capable of freedom or even of consent to government. And so it always has to find some way to account for the authority that must be exercised over them until they are. Even if all other traditional authorities uh, over adults could somehow be expunged, the problem of dependent children would remain with us. The intransigence of this aspect of childhood makes it an ideal entry point into the broader challenge of liberal authority, since it continues to confront us in every generation, long after the clergy has been disestablished and the nobility overthrown and universal suffrage made a basic expectation. But precisely because of the logic of congruence, because authority doesn't fit comfortably into a liberal regime grounded on liberty and equality, we liberals harbor a deep antipathy to authority. There are extreme versions of this antipathy to authority at the edges of liberal discourse, where some people, like John Holt in the 1970s, argued that childhood is just an artificial category constructed for the purpose of subjugating young people, and the way towards greater congruence is simply to abolish childhood. Uh, but I'm less interested in the radical child liberation version of the argument, which never really gained a ton of ground, uh, than in the moderate and mainstream version that's advanced by contemporary liberal and democratic theory. Political theorists, mostly following the lead of John Rawls in the 1970s, have tried to address this tension between the liberal regime and the hierarchical family by defending a very narrow sphere of legitimate parental authority that would, on the one hand, account for the visceral dependence of children on parents, but would also at the same time open the door as early and as far as possible to their independence and equality. These theorists, among them Amy Gutman, Mira Levinson, Stephen Macedo, and others, largely have settled on autonomy, what they call autonomy as the aim of education. Autonomy has meant things like, quote, a right to an open future, or an ability to, quote, weigh and revise one's conception of a good life, or the capacity to choose freely among a range of competing conceptions of the good life. Some authority has to be wielded in the service of this aim, given the cognitive immaturity of children. But this authority might be limited only to the minimum that would render the child capable of weighing and revising his conceptions of the good or choosing among lives without imposing any such conceptions on him. Even this authority can never be wielded by parents alone, according to these theorists, or even by entire communities if those communities are too homogenous, like the Amish. Because we have, as Amy Gutman puts it, an obligation to allow children to be exposed to the choices available in their extra-familial society. So education is thus a process through which children could rehearse their future autonomy, their future equality, their future liberty in a, quote, protected space, the school, away from the dominating influence of parents. The schools that these theorists have in mind were, without, with very few exceptions, compulsory state-run and designed explicitly to, as Amy Gutman put it, quote, convert children away from the presumptively undemocratic views of their families. All these theorists insist that schools must be controlled primarily by the disinterested and centralized state, since parental and community control will only reinforce parental and community prejudices and undermine autonomy. If we follow these arguments, I think we have to admit that ch the children have a point when they insist that neither their parents nor anyone else is the boss of them, at least not by any particular right. The overarching aim of liberal theorists has been to limit parental authority as much as the circumstances of childhood permit. They regret the exercise of authority over children, even while admitting its practical necessity, because they can't reconcile childhood subordination with adult freedom. 
Consequently, the basic logic of liberal educational theory has been that of congruence between the public and the private realms, the structure of the state and its families and schools. Since the liberal democratic state turns on equality and individual liberty, children are best pre prepared for citizenship in it by experience, experiencing egalitarian social relations and rehearsing rights in the pre-political spheres that they inhabit. The democratic school, with its emphasis on neutral exposure and experimentation with many ways of life, serves this end much better than a necessarily insular and hierarchical family. And there is an appealing uh, logical simplicity to this, or this assumption. And as a result, it is typically deviations from it that require justification. It's incongruence that's confusing, requiring us to demand a form of personal authority in one sphere of the regime, the family and the school, uh, that liberalism is otherwise designed to undermine in every other sphere. The dependence and neediness of the child demands that parents and pedagogues behave toward him in a hierarchical, coercive way that is not only impermissible in relation to our fellow citizens, but that everything in their education has set them against. So ambivalence towards authority makes a great deal of sense in the contemporary liberal context. So although they understood themselves to be liberal, and often they made cursory appeals to early liberal thinkers like John Locke, these contemporary arguments actually suffer from serious amnesia about the arguments of the 17th and 18th centuries regarding the nature and justifications for authority over children. Early liberals like Locke and Jean-Jacques Rousseau advanced a very different argument about parental authority in education. Indeed, the exercise of authority over children is central to both their pedagogies, and both of them wrote whole books devoted to the question of education, which also aim at liberty and political equality for adults. One reason for this is that Locke and Rousseau were responding to an earlier logic of congruence, that of 16th and 17th century theorists of absolute sovereignty, like Jean Baudin and Thomas Hobbes and Robert Filmer. These absolutists were also trying to model the family on the state, just like contemporary liberals. But the congruence of absolute monarchy obviously looks quite different than the congruence of liberal democracy. For the absolutists, the goal was to establish absolutism as a plausible account of political power. When earlier political thinkers described primitive governments as patriarchal, that was mainly to show how incompatible this form of rule was with modern government, which required standing laws and circumscribed offices. It was not until the rise of absolutist arguments like those of Baudin in the 16th century that paternal authority was invoked as a model for the power of the monarch. Baudin's challenge was to demonstrate the possibility of an absolute unitary political power that could make the law but remain unaccountable to it. Of course, God can do that, but it would be heretical to deify human monarchs that way. So where could such power come from and how could it be justified? Baudin's solution was to find it in the natural rights or natural powers of fathers, which he claimed were the best human approximation to divine power. In order to augment the father's legal power so that he could more closely resemble the absolute sovereign, Baudin even argued for the restoration to fathers of the long defunct Roman light, right of life and death uh, which is the right to execute your own children. Uh, Baudin's desire for a return to this form of paternal power is, is pretty remarkable in its context, that this paternal right of life and death was a pre-Christian practice that was abolished in the name of Christianity. And Baudin, we have to be clear, didn't intend the recovery of this extraordinary power to alter real family life. He didn't think fathers were just going to go out and execute their sons en masse. In fact, he thought almost no one would actually do it. But it was rather a formal necessity for the family to serve as an educative model for absolute sovereignty, to become, as he calls it, quote, the true seminary and beginning of every commonweal. A correct orientation towards the authority of his father would form the moral basis for a subject's reverence for his king. Just as the family is the, quote, true image of a city, so also is the manner of government of a, of a house or family the true model for the government of a commonweal. This is the introduction of the logic of congruence into modern political thought, and it's important to note that this logic first appears in defense of absolutism. When we examine Baudin's thought more closely, however, his stress on the natural power of the family actually jeopardizes or comes into conflict with the authority of the sovereign, because that, by contrast to the father, is unnatural. 
as the father's powers expand to better model absolute sovereignty, they increasingly conflict with the sovereign's powers. In other words, any father who actually executes his children is depriving the sovereign of the right to do that and also depriving him of his pardon power. On the other hand, any son raised to regard his father as his absolute sovereign will have little reason to replace him with the monarch, especially while his natural father remains alive. So this, the result is a kind of unresolved tension in Baudin's politics between the conventional power of the civil sovereign and the natural right or natural power of the father. One way to solve this is to fuse royal and paternal authority, and another way is to confuse royal and paternal authority. And that's the way that Robert Filmer went about resolving this tension. And another possibility is to denaturalize the family so that it can be definitively subordinated to the sovereign. And that's the, the path that Thomas Hobbes took. So building on Baudin, Filmer derived the origins of all government from God's paternal right over Adam and his descendants. You might know Filmer if you've read Locke, that's the main person that he's objecting to in the two treatises. Filmer's biblical originalism is astonishingly simple. The first man was the first monarch, that's Adam. His children were his first subjects. His family was the first state, and the entire world was his personal property. And then all subsequent monarchs are descended from Adam with the same paternal authority that he had by inheritance. Sovereignty operates just as it does in Baudin, only paternal power is no longer a model for political power, but its entire substance. He writes, if we compare the natural duties of a father with those of a king, we find them to be all one, without any difference at all, but only in the latitude or extent of them. So this is in effect the perfection of the logic of congruence. Even more than for Baudin, the family and the state are structured along identical principles and for identical ends, in Filmer's thought. The state essentially becomes a big family. Hobbes presented an ultimately more interesting and influential version of the absolutist logic of congruence. He saw that deriving the authority of fathers from nature was actually dangerous because nature takes precedence over convention. So rights derived from nature, like those of fathers, might trump claims to power derived from the mere conventional social contract, which is where sovereigns derive their power from. And if subjects have grounds to prioritize the dictates of anyone other than the sovereign, they have, in effect, grounds for resistance against the sovereign. It's their natural father against their artificial king. Baudin had outlawed resistance, but Hobbes saw that no, so long as the desire for resistance remained, legal prohibitions would not suffice to prevent it. Since, quote, the power of the mighty hath no foundation but in the opinion and belief of the people, as he wrote in Behemoth, the Hobbesian sovereign was tasked with enforcing a uniformity of opinion by undermining the independence of mediating institutions, including the family, from which subversive opinions might emerge. Hobbes did this by denying that the family was a natural association at all. He insisted that children, even infants, actually consent to be ruled by their parents. Even if that consent was obtained by force or by threat, it formed a valid contract nonetheless. So the family itself was a merely conventional association, and the father's power was no less contract-based than the sovereign's. And in any case, once individuals contract to establish a sovereign, families persist only at the pleasure of the sovereign, who can abolish them at any time. So Hobbes encouraged the sovereign to preserve the family, though, and especially an absolutist conception of paternal right, because he realized it could be used to serve a useful pedagogical function that supports his position, that of teaching children by experience how terrible authorities like fathers can be, and how preferable it might be to submit to a distant artificial sovereign instead. Thus the child raised under an absolutist father will come to resent him, and to prefer loyalty to the distant impersonal sovereign over loyalty to a domineering and highly personal father. This attitude would neutralize a major source of the potential political resistance, which is our loyalty to our families against the state, so that the congruent Hobbesian family becomes a tool of the sovereign's larger goal of public opinion management, keeping people in line. Locke, in his early thought on these questions, actually starts out in a strikingly Hobbesian place. Like Hobbes, he believed in the 1660s in the possibility of a powerful sovereign who can control public opinion from on high and who could thereby maintain public order and quell potential rebellions. Uh, but as the Civil War drags on, 
in, in the 17th century, his confidence in this proposition begins to erode, and you can see it in his writings. He became increasingly concerned that public opinion was too powerful and unwieldy a force to be controlled by any government. Wrong opinions emerged everywhere, and they caught on, and the state's enormous efforts to suppress them were, in Locke's view by the 1680s, simply counterproductive. Hobbes claimed that given correctly managed political conditions, man, men would accept their sovereign's judgments about contested opinions, even when they might have privately disagreed. Locke suggested that they were much more likely to respond to such dissonance by killing their sovereign. What Locke called the, quote, law of fashion, or the law of opinion and reputation, has neither legislate, legislator nor executor. It has, it's a sort of self-generating and self-enforcing power in a society. In the essay concerning human understanding, he wrote, the greatest part of men govern themselves chiefly, if not solely, by the law of fashion. And so they do that which keeps them in reputation with their company and little regard the laws of God or the magistrate. No one can reliably direct this law of fashion and all political efforts to manage and channel it will have an unpredictable and at best partial result. This law is like a shadow government. It, quote, establishes itself in the several societies, tribes, and clubs of men in the world by a secret and tacit consent, Locke says. So there's no point in hoping that good laws or good government can save us from corrupt public opinion. Opinion is too combustible, and the emerging modern science's denial of certain knowledge about the world would only make it more difficult for any public authority to successfully suppress it. Instead, government and society had to be organized around principles like toleration and civility, which would allow conflicting opinions to burn safely at low heat without flaring up into revolution. But Locke saw that this arrangement also threatened to make wrong opinions more powerful by removing all the mechanisms that had previously tried to constrain them, leaving especially the highly susceptible minds of children particularly exposed. He wrote, custom settles habits of thinking in the understanding, as well as of determining the will, which once set a-going continue on in the same steps that they have been used to. The question of education takes on a new salience for Locke and for liberals more broadly once this problem of the power of opinion becomes clear. While he was willing to admit wrong opinions into circulation for the sake of civil peace, Locke was not a relativist, and he was unwilling to forego any possibility of ascertaining the truth and living according to it. Finding a way out of this new difficulty required the selective and narrow reintroduction of authority into the family in order to preserve some possibility for children of a future intellectual freedom. Where public authority was no longer capable of directing men to happiness, the private authority of parents and pedagogues would have to be made to suffice. If it is the case that men mainly do that which keeps them in reputation with their company, then it becomes imperative to ensure that their first company is virtuous company. So for this reason, because public opinion or fashion would be so powerful and pervasive a source of authority in the liberal regime, Locke rejected the logic of congruence. The state should be liberal, premised on equality and liberty for adults, but the structure of the family and education should be, in effect, authoritarian. Indeed, it's precisely for the sake of preserving freedom and equality for adults that Locke wrote, children when little should look upon their parents as their lords, their absolute governors, and as such stand in awe of them. That's from some thoughts concerning education, his educational treatise that he published in 1693, just a few years after his <clears throat> much more famous second treatise of government, which lays out the political framework of what we today call liberalism. So in his education book, he points out that children act as, in per, as much in pursuit of their desires as everyone else. And their strongest desire is, like all the rest of us, for esteem. Esteem and disgrace are of all others the most powerful incentives to the mind which I look on as the great secret of education, he wrote. Esteem is the impetus for imitation and is thus the most educative of our desires. But esteem has to come from someone. And whoever becomes the arbiter of esteem and disgrace for a child takes on an enormous authority over him. The danger, though, is that nearly anyone can exercise such authority over a child simply by dispensing esteem and disgrace. So Locke warns repeatedly in his book on education about the, quote, great danger from servants and other ill-ordered children. 
their authority is either irresponsible or malicious. Servants are not held to account for the way that children turned out, turn out, and nor do they have any strong self-interest in a good outcome. Fellow children are even worse authorities since they exploit each other's desire to be liked, creating arbitrary and even morally pernicious social hierarchies to subordinate and compel conformity. Children's social worlds exemplify on a small scale the tyrannical potential of the law of fashion. Their rules are arbitrary and constantly changing, but enforced with unrelenting zeal. As children habitually angle to remain in the favor of their classmates or their friends, they lose the habit of mind that the habits of mind that permit intellectual liberty. Left to his own devices with other children, the child's ideas and values are derived from, quote, the prevailing infection of his fellows, as Locke calls it. Consequently, Locke warns parents against schools because their sheer preponderance, the sheer preponderance of the young in them undermines adult authority and replaces it with the tyranny of other boys. You think it worthwhile to hazard your son's innocence and virtue for a little Greek and Latin. He that considers how diametrically opposite the skill of living well and managing as a man should do his affairs in the world is to that malapertness, tricking, or violence learnt among schoolboys will think the fault of a privater education infinitely to be preferred to such improvements and will take care to preserve his child's innocence and modesty at home as being nearer of kin and more in the way of those qualities which make a useful and able man. The most straightforward shortcoming of schools is that even potentially salutary adult authorities within them are always vastly outnumbered by children. Quote, let the master's industry and skill be ever so great. It is impossible that he should have 50 or 100 scholars under his eye, the forming of their minds and manners requiring a constant attention and particular application to every single boy, which is impossible in a numerous flock. That's the problem with schools. Parents at home, by contrast, can attend much more carefully to their much smaller flock. They can individuate education, and more importantly, they can stand between children to preempt that tyranny over one another that develops where adult authority is outnumbered. And they stand between children and the broader world to delay and diminish the even more powerful pull that its fashions will have on them. To achieve this, authority has to be exclusive to parents and extended at their discretion to the few others whom they deem to be acceptable influences, so that the moral influence that authority exerts is in the first place consistent, but even perhaps more importantly, so that it is purposeful and it understands itself as such. Locke flatters parents by presuming that they are better suited to govern their own children than anyone else, commending his readers for being so irregularly bold that they dare venture to consult their own reason in the education of their children rather than wholly to rely upon old custom. But he doesn't say this because he thinks that his readers necessarily are more reasonable than their servants or the neighborhood children, or less susceptible to the corruption of popular opinion. Even conscientious parents are prone to error, and most are like unlikely to start out being conscientious. But it's the long duration of the relationship between parents and children that offers an inducement to parents to consider the long-term effects of their decisions more carefully. Their children will inherit not just their property, but their personal legacies. There is simply far more at stake for parents in child rearing than for anyone else who deals with their children. Moreover, the process of Lockean and child rearing works to improve parents. For parents to establish their authority as dispensers of esteem and disgrace, their children have to be induced to, quote, fall in love with the company of their parents. But this requires that parents make themselves lovable. Uh, in order to direct their children's wills, they must first will for them, and as they grow, parents must serve as, con as uh, constant confidants and advisors, fearing nothing more than that their children should desire to confide in anyone but them. Everything in Locke's pedagogy, from his prohibition against swaddling, which immobilized infants precisely so that adults could ignore them, uh, to his encouragement of home education and the employment of fathers as tutors, demands that parents attend much more closely to their children than was expected of them, and probably much more than they would have otherwise desired to do. Some scholars have argued that Lockean education simply recapitulates the fashions and customs of the society at large. But the sheer amount of time that parents will have to spend with their children, to the exclusion of all other company, ensures that the family will form its own opinions and judgments, at least some, against those of the society at large. 
Such resistance is buttressed by the ongoing experience of many years in each other's company. If parents were vulgar people, vulgar people beholden to fashion before their children arrived, Lockean parenthood on a rural country estate will tend to erode their ties to high society, replacing it with the society of their household and their village. By putting them in, a con in the constant presence of their children, Lockean parenthood urges them to rethink and moderate the unbecoming qualities that may have been prized by their former adult companions. Chim children imitate those that they admire, and this very tendency is a check on parents. You must do nothing before him, Locke says, which you would not have him imitate. All this in turn fosters a distinct family culture that diverges from the main currents of fashion and public opinion, at least to some degree. Nonetheless, some thoughts concerning education does not aim at a society of permanently isolated families living in eccentric worlds of their own disconnected from the broader civil society. Locke understood that even the milder sort of government, as he calls it, which, enjoins on older children, which he enjoins on older children, is likely to become ineffectual by adolescence what he calls that boiling, boisterous part of life, when boys chafe under even the most lovable parents' rule, and when they think themselves too much men to be governed by others, yet have not prudence and experience enough to govern themselves. It's at this point that children become more susceptible to fashion because they grow skeptical of the familial judgments that had up to then sh shielded them. Adolescents are inclined to follow the temptations of their companions over the judgments of their parents. Nonetheless, for an adolescent who encounters such conflicts between family and fashion after many years in a happy and loving family that diverged from fashionable precepts, this previous experience gives him grounds for resistance and a real ability to at least make a choice, and thus forms an important barrier against unthinking acceptance of prevailing fashion. It may seem strange that for all of his emphasis on home and family education, Locke would concede its eventual insufficiency. But this is because despite his deference to parental authority, Locke never conceives parental authority to be total or even very powerful. Rather, he permits such an extensive authority of, for parents because he understands it to be so weak relative to the competing forces in a liberal society, the, re the rebelliousness of children and especially the power of fashion and opinion. Even the most authoritative and insular family, provided that it retains some basic contact with the broader society, is a weak fence against the overwhelming influence of that society's fashions and opinions. By keeping children out of school and away from the influence of the public, however, at least for a while, Locke merely delays their exposure to fashion and custom, providing them with a family education that will be a counterweight and a source of dissonance when they do finally enter the broader society. Locke's thoughts on concerning education was an enormously influential work in England, but it was Jean-Jacques Rousseau's Emile, published 70 years later in 1763, that made the indelible mark on educational thought on the continent uh, and eventually in the U.S. In Emile, Rousseau both critiques and affirms Locke, but I want to focus here on the ways in which his argument converges with Locke's on the question of parental authority in education. Like Locke, Rousseau rejects absolutism and the absolutist logic of congruence because he too saw the overwhelming power of public opinion as the main threat to individual liberty. So weak was the power of sovereigns against it, according to Rousseau, that, quote, opinion, queen of the world, is not subject to the power of kings. They are themselves her first slaves. All of Rousseau's education is designed to prevent Emile from becoming a slave to opinion and in a different way to put Sophie above opinion as well. Just as for Locke's pupil, for both Emile and Sophie, who are the two characters in Emile, uh, we spend most of the time on Emile, the last book is on Sophie, the road to this eventual liberty runs through authority. On the cusp of adolescence, Emile's tutor offers to set him free, but he begs him to control him instead. Oh, my friend, oh, my protector, my master, take back the authority you want to give up at the very moment that it is most important for me that you retain it, says Emile. Sophie receives an even more straightforwardly Lockean education, being, quote, constrained very early to the authority of her mother, whom she is brought to love and who quickly becomes her confidant, as Rousseau puts it. Emile is taught to disdain fashion and opinion, while Sophie is taught to master it by using it to her advantage. Both Locke and Rousseau are concerned to develop the child's will to become capable of controlling his desires so that he may be able to withstand the lifelong social pressure he's going to face to conform to prevailing fashion. Education in the liberal tradition is the gradual development of self-control, or what Locke called self-mastery. But until children can control themselves, they're easily controlled by others. 
So the bulk of Locke's education and the latter half of Emile's and all of Sophie's in Emile is taken up with the development of this sort of self-control, modeled and imposed by parents. The aim of this education is never so narrow as to turn out mere copies of parents molded in all its particulars by their preferences, but it requires the opposite of permissiveness. It demands an almost constant crossing of the child's desires to demonstrate to him how he can cross his own, to build up his willpower so that he can resist the importunities of fashion himself later on. Early liberals also believed in a kind of open future, like contemporary liberal theorists, but they saw that an open future could only be preserved by a kind of closed childhood. And the most important thing to learn if you want to be able to freely choose as an adult is how to ha avoid having all of your choices foreclosed by a slavish love of social approval that's kindled in you in childhood. Early modern liberalism was conceived in opposition to absolutism. Locke certainly limited the full absolutist conception of paternal power, first by extending it to mothers and calling it parental power, second by making it strictly time limited so that it would legally end at the age of majority, and third by protecting the lives and even the property inheritances of children from parental power. But Locke and Rousseau did not argue that the family should be a smaller model of the liberal polity. For all their opposition to absolutist public authorities, Locke and Rousseau never proposed to liberate children from their parents. They opposed modeling the family on the state, even on a democratic egalitarian state, because they viewed the so-called authoritarian family as a necessary educational buttress for children against the new forms of social tyranny that liberal commercial states were going to develop. The family and the state can't mirror each other because in a liberal state, they don't exist for the same ends. The family does prepare the child for citizenship, but not by having him rehearse civic principles from a young age. Rather, it does so by inoculating him against the worst tendencies of liberalism, the tendency to be ruled by fashion, by custom, and by the opinions of the majority. The family can do this precisely because it does not resemble the state. The reason Locke and Rousseau pursue this counterintuitive argument about the relationship between childhood authority and adult liberty is to combat this new enemy that arises when you get rid of the absolute sovereign. In its place, in modern commercial states, the power of fashion and public opinion threatens to control us even more effectively than a sovereign. Both thinkers worry that public opinion is both corrupt and corrupting, so they turn to education and to pedagogical authority as a means of preserving the human capacity for freedom against public opinion. They defended parental authority as a means to adult freedom. The problem with the logic of congruence, whether it's the 17th century's monarchical congruence or today's democratic congruence, is that it's a basically illiberal logic. And liberal freedom requires non-congruence in the form of authoritative or even authoritarian education. So to spend just two minutes on the relevant questions of the present, what does this mean for us today? Does any of this still hold for us? I think one of the biggest challenges that we face today is that we're not only a liberal state, but also a democratic one. And that means in Tocquevillian terms that Americans have neither the money nor the time to undertake the educational programs that Locke and Rousseau proposed. Hiring a, t a tutor to help you teach your children out on a country estate is not in the cards for most of us today. Although COVID probably brought us as close as we're ever going to get to universal homeschooling. So we have this vast public school system which approximately 90% of American children attend. Uh, and yet the dangers that early liberals saw in the new liberal order are just as salient for us today, that the authorities that insulated people from mass society were eroded, and that what we today call peer pressure or conformism would be strengthened as education was left more and more to institutional schools where children vastly outnumber adults. Anyone who has experienced middle school in the United States in the past 60 years or so can probably attest to the tyrannical quality of other children. But at the same time as we might admit these challenges, we are in some sense more afraid of parental authority than ever before. In academic circles, there's this enormous suspicion of homeschooling as a way for parents to indoctrinate their children. And the claim that parents should have, quote, a say in their kids' education, uh, in, as in our recent gubernatorial election, elicited a lot of scoffing. But we can't really understand the indoctrinating possibilities of parents when we ignore the pervasive ways that there is indoctrination everywhere else in society, right? including in the schools and in the larger culture. Parental authority can certainly be abused and misused, but it can also be well used. 
The pedagogical authority of the peer group or of the broader culture differs in that in its irrationality, it can hardly ever be well used. Locke and Rousseau did not fear the narrow or too parochial influence of the family on the child because they saw the much more powerful influence of public opinion waiting just behind its doors. But since we must have schools, and the best, I think the best thing that we can do is to protect educational pluralism, to allow parents a say through local control of public schools, through the broadest possible variety of private school options, and through liberal permission to homeschool for those parents who are willing to take up that challenge. Pluralism does not mean that individual families can impose their educational visions on entire schools or districts without a majority to support them, but it does mean that there should be viable exit options from the public schools for such families if they fail to win majority support. Educational pluralism supports parental authority by protecting the possibility of raising children in different ways, including in authoritarian ways that inculcate self-control. It breaks up the centrifugal tendencies of public opinion into smaller subcultures, ensuring that there actually are diverse ways of life for children to enter when they reach adulthood, rather than the parade of superficially diverse ways of life that are all fundamentally the same that contemporary liberal theorists encourage children to be shown. And most importantly, it leaves open the possibility of recognizing and acting on the Lockean and Rousseauian suggestion that liberal liberty is the hard-won prize of a somewhat illiberal education, and that the liberty of the adult citizen depends in our regime on the subordination of the pre-political child. Thanks. So I'm, I'm happy to take any questions that you guys might have. No, total consensus, great. Yes? I suspect back in the day of Lockdown, little consideration of grandparents, or even today, great-grandparents, we do play a role. Yeah, I know. They're watching my kids right now. <laughs> They're playing a big role. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think for Locke, and this is, Rousseau is less interested in this question, but for Locke, property is a major question in the family. And the inheritance, he's still functioning in a kind of aristocratic political order, even though he's, or a, an aristocratic social order, though he's imagining a liberal political order. And in fact, England is moving towards a liberal political order. And as a result, the gener multi-generations of families are important because that's how property is inherited. Uh, and so grandparents matter, but I think the, the idea that he's pointing to is that if you develop this kind of harmonious nuclear family, it's going to be harmonious across generations because you will all have, in a sense, the same priorities, or you're likely to, and if you don't, then the child leaves at the age of majority. That's what the age of majority is there for, to protect his right to get out of the family that he decides he's not, he doesn't want to have anything to do with, right? And he might risk losing his inheritance if he does that, but that's his prerogative. Uh, and so I think grandparents play a kind of implicit role in an aristocracy that Locke doesn't feel he has to articulate because there is this mode of transmitting property that is multi-generational. And so for us, that doesn't mean anything anymore. We don't have primogeniture and entail. And it's true that we, in our understanding, what we've inherited from liberalism, this part of the family is under-articulated because I think it, a lot of it was so assumed that they didn't think there would ever really be a world in which property was simply commercial real estate, right? And you weren't going to inherit anything from your parents at all. And parents really play in, in some ways a fundamentally different role, not different, but more attenuated role in our regime than they did in Locke's. So you're right to say that we have kind of lost a sense of what is the purpose of family members beyond children and parents, this kind of dyadic relationship. Uh, and it's true, and I think the reason for it has to do with our ra a really radical change in our property relations. Yep. yep. I was just reading about echo, echo Mm-hmm, yeah. And I just think to enter, you know, so I was sort of saying, 
closet says don't trust Yeah. And I think what I like about possibly like about public schools is if you meet people from lots of whatever diverse whatever mm -hmm. I think when you meet people face to face like that, it's more difficult to build those walls of distrust. Yes. Yeah, I think the at least in theory that you said is playing a big role in this argument. And this is sort I mean, that's the argument that contemporary liberal theorists make. The public school is diverse. The public school is going to is going to be this neutral source of offering you all these diverse ways of life. Right, but it's impossible, right? I mean, it's not just a matter of in theory if we could design a better version, but what would it take to make a school that is totally neutral about ways of life, right? I mean, we would have to have very centralized control of schools. Local control is obviously a big problem because that's just echo chambers. Uh, so we would need to have a very centralized state that is controlling and setting a uniform curriculum across all the schools in the country. And we would have to hope that the, the centralized controllers of that curriculum are not themselves biased in any way towards one form of echo or one cham chamber one echo, I don't know, uh, then it, you know, and opposed to others. So I think that the problem in a democracy is you, you can't really do that. And what you end up doing is reinforcing, smuggling in what is basically an ideological worldview and saying that it's neutral because it's being promulgated by the state. Yeah, so you can continue. <laughs> no, 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 I mean, if, if you have an objection, I'm willing to, yes, entertain it. I mean, I guess I'd be skeptical that at any point in our school system we have done that. Um, and I get, think the other even problem. On the, what? Even improved on the homeschool or the sort of more. I mean, that's all I'm saying, but it seems like it would be an improvement. Uh, well, okay, so I guess the, the other point is that you would have to, when you make this argument that exposing children to a diversity of ways of life and stuff like that is going to give them resources to make better choices, you have to assume that at that age they're really well equipped to judge. And I don't think that, I mean, the point that Locke is making is that's exactly the age at which they're taken in. And they want to impress people who are not, and they can't judge who is good and who is bad to impress. So uh, in the discussion that we had with the students a little bit earlier, um, I suggested this example, which is, you know, if you think back on your own education, was there ever a time in which you fell in with a bad crowd or were friends with a bad seed type of person? And if that did happen, why? You were given a diversity of options, and you picked a bad option, right? And so it's because your judgment was bad, right? And so I think that the danger of exposing people to a diversity of options is you have to expose them to a whole diversity of bad options, too, in order to be fair. And how are they going to judge? They haven't yet developed the reason that would allow them the kind of judgment that Locke wants as the end of his education. Right, so you're going to, in a way, predispose them to being taken in very early in a point where they're not quite capable. Whereas it's true that there's a kind of echo, you know, either we have this fear of indoctrination by the family. If we just hold the kid in the family, then they're only exposed to what the family believes. Like, how are they ever going to cope with the world? And I think that that's just highly overblown. 
that like we have lots of evidence from homeschooling families, even you know very religious homeschooling families, families on the fringes of mainstream society, where their children enter mainstream life afterwards and are not particularly disadvantaged. They're able to cope, and you know if they want to leave the society of their parents, they can do it. Sometimes there are costs, but there are costs to entering those kinds of societies too. And we can't make it cost-free, but we can say that institutions are bad at doing it and children are bad at receiving it. And so even though there are dangers in leaving children to the discretion of their parents, I agree, some people could misuse this, on the whole, we might be better off with a kind of deference to parents, which is not to say we should promote universal homeschooling. We can't do it. Democracy can't do it. We're always going to have schools. Hmm? I mean, that's, that's an impossibility. I mean, right, yeah. That's what I mean by democracy can't do it. And you've got, you know, one parent working two jobs, right. another one working three jobs. Well, that's what I mean by democracy. Democracy can't do it because we don't have time and we don't have money. We don't have this aristocracy that has the estate out in the country and they can just devote their 100% of their time because they're leisured to educating their children. So we have to deal with schools. And, and, and a lot, I would hasten to say, I think that a lot of parents are incapable of educating their children in a sense that they themselves have not been educated properly already themselves. I mean, what, you know, what, what sort of facts, what sort of um, uh, things are we teaching our children or our grandchildren, as the case may be, in our own homes? I mean, yeah. That I'm less persuaded by because we could argue that schools are also taught by people who are poorly taught and poorly educated and that we don't have a lot of evidence that the schools are amazing educators. And part of what Locke is trying to argue sure, is... But you can look at them. You know, you have... Oh, so, you, what, so what you want is the accountability. The accountability. Okay. Sure. And, you know, if you... But how do you hold parents within their own home accountable for what they are teaching their children? How do you even know what they are teaching their children other than how it comes out of the child himself or herself? I mean, you know what, it's kind of difficult to do that. Okay, I think accountability though is a different question than qualification. Because I think part of what Locke is, is saying is that, yeah, actually parents are kind of bad. Like he sort of accepts that and he says, look at what this task is going to involve if you really want to homeschool. You're going to get better in the process. Because it, you can't, it, the demands of it are so overwhelming that you have to, in a sense, improve yourself. And I think that's actually true. I mean, we have data on homeschooling outcomes and there you would think that these people wouldn't be qualified and yet they seem to manage. Uh, and so at least not obviously worse than public schools, which also seem to produce a lot of really bad outcomes for people, though we, are, we can hold them accountable. So there you're right, there's a distinction in public accountability. I think the difficulty with that is like we have private schools and they're not accountable in the same way. And yet we seem to think that's fine or we're not like in a big rush to regulate that or make sure or to find ways to hold them accountable. It's just individual parents that we're really suspicious of. And I'm not sure that's totally justified. I'm not necessarily suspicious only of individual parents. I mean, there are private schools that are really good. There are private schools that are not so good and not, you know, teaching things the way that they should. But at least somebody has a choice about putting their kid in there, and if they don't agree with the philosophy and the like, they pull them out. But, but that would be the same thing with homeschooling. You have a choice to homeschool or send your kid to a school. Well, yeah, but you don't have a choice of your parents. Oh, but the kids don't have a choice anyway. You get sent to the public school, you get sent to the private school, you get homeschooled. The kids are not, they don't have a choice one way or the other. Well, if they act up enough, they're going to get, the, they'll make a choice. Bounce <laughs> out of the school, basically. And that has happened more than. Yeah. <laughs> but then they're going to go somewhere worse. I mean, they're still not going to get a choice. They're going to get sent to something even probably worse than what they tried to get out of. Right. Yes. One more? Question? Sure. Yeah. Just <laughs> Mm -hmm. uh, where he was talking about essentially the tyranny of the other students. Mm -hmm. Those other students were specifically boys. Oh, yeah. And I'm wondering whether, uh, uh, whether that sort of presumption on his part, in the same way that he's also got this notion of, you know, aristocratic homes. Mm -hmm. But th th does that in any way affect the applicability of his ideas in your no, because he actually says at the beginning of some thoughts concerning education, I'm going to be talking with the male pronoun, basically. I mean, he doesn't use those words, but I'm going to be talking about boys. But everything I say can be applied to girls, too, with a few modifications for the specifics of their sex, 
whatever they are. I mean, he's not very specific, right? Uh, but he basically sets out to say this is the principles of this education apply equally to women. Uh, and so there just wasn't much girl schooling going on in the 17th century in England so that you would want to make this disclaimer. But Rousseau makes the explicit disclaimer because convent schools in France are a thing and the elites do send their daughters to them. And he says the last place you want to send your daughter unless you want her to become a complete moron is to a convent school. For the same reasons. Like it's just going to be other girls tyrannizing her there. So I think the principle applies across genders. Thank you all for coming. I uh, hope you will return March 29 of next year for Jonathan Rouse's lecture on this book, Constitution of Knowledge. Uh, hope you'll stick around for the reception and the book sign. The beautiful books are over there on the table. Uh, thank you very much. Let's say it again, please. Thank you.